1: This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred rights.org, that's W R I T E S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Consider being young and receiving news on the television that negatively portrays certain populations of people in a way that is less than flattering. As a young person with no training in media critique, the inclination might be to internalize problematic representations as truth. These views then become biases which could then take years of personal reflection and unpacking when evidence to the contrary indicates that these beliefs stemming from media representations and or government statements aren't actually true. When governments and media depict specific populations in particular ways through their large platforms, the consequences upon the worldviews of untold numbers of people can perpetuate bigotry xenophobia, racism, and more. The links between how people think about the religions of the world is often channeled to us through media from a very young age without any instruction on how to process and critique what is received. This is part of the topic of this episode's conversation, and my guest is Dr. Amanda Furiasseh. Amanda Furiasse received her Ph.D. in Religion and Graduate Certificate in Museum Studies from Florida State University in 2018. Her research unfolds at the convergence of religion, health, technology, and African-Indigenous religions. She is the co-founder and curator at the Religion, Art, and Technology Lab, where she produces multisensory exhibitions for the public on the relationship between faith, aesthetics, and innovation. In this conversation, Dr. Furiasse and I discuss public exhibitions, public health, interpiece, peace, an Afrocentric approach to public health, Africana religions, and public health in graduate education. You can follow the work of the Religion, Art, and Technology Lab exhibits at ratlabmuseum.org and on Twitter at ratlabmuseum. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Amanda Furiase. Dr. Amanda Furiase, welcome to Classical Ideas.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit.
0: Okay. Oh, that's a big one. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) my name's Amanda. Uh, I'm currently an assistant professor at Nova Southeastern University in the digital humanities, but my background uh, is in the study of religion. So I look at how to apply, like, really the intersection between religion and technology. Yeah. Yeah. I love that.
1: I love that. Do you, do you have like a particular, um, origin story for either of the, for those two areas and then how you like came to be interested in technology as something that matters in the world, how you became interested in religion and then maybe the intersection of those two fields?
0: Oh yeah. That's a great question. Well, the story is actually one of frustration by my parents (laughs) to some degree.
1: It happens. Um, I hear that a lot. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um in college um, i was very good at stem i uh, was good in physics as, astronomy um you know scored perfect on the sat and gre and math and science yeah uh, much to the chagrin of my parents uh who were like okay she's gonna go into like a stem field i thought astronomy really um that was like i was so fascinated by that in college and did really well uh, i was lucky enough i went to north central college I had the best teachers in physics and astronomy. I mean, Mm -hmm. in those subjects, it all comes down to the teacher. It really does. And I was blessed to have great teachers. Uh, But (laughs) my parents, thinking, oh, yes, she will go into STEM. This is good. I actually transitioned into religion in college from astronomy and physics because I found that I was more interested in theoretical, complex theoretical questions Mm -hmm. about cosmologies and human existence, Uh, you know, quantum physics, I um, took a course in quantum physics, and I was just like, I loved it, I loved Mm. it. But I also the professor always said, you know, really, this is a philosophy course. And a lot of the questions we're looking at are ones that challenge our understanding of the world and how we relate to the world, which he kind of was like, some of these questions you might consider under the field of religion. So then I took a religion and science course at my college. And I was just like, yeah, I was like jazz, this is cool stuff. Um, and then I got really interested too in like ancient astronomy. I took a course in Islam, medieval cool. Islam, yeah. And we did like ancient Islamic astronomy. And I was like, I was just like, this is amazing. I, I these theory, cause I was more kind of focused on these complex theoretical questions. And I lo- started to love the study in, of antiquity. Yeah, Um, so it's kind of like a weird maybe,
1: and it kind of also like you you're sort of tracing the history of how humans sort of developed their astronomical thinking. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I found that the history was rooted in religion. Uh, You know, if you go back, um, I studied the Abbasid Caliphate um, in one of in a course that I took, and really their understanding of religion was co-twined with science um and islam islamic theology really served as the kind of backbone or source for a lot of our astronomical knowledge that we would end up building upon a lot of abbasid astronomy is now kind of the basis for western astronomy so yeah it was like a history of science kind of thing
1: i Um, love that there's (laughs) so much of religion in that like whenever i read uh things like like with High school students like Edith Hamilton's mythology or whatever. What I tend to see is I tend to see stories of human beings trying to make sense of the things in the world that they can't really explain, and then stumbling ever forwards within their thinking and their progress. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's so much wisdom back in that ancient past that just really is mystifies people and intrigues and inspires us. You know, this idea of lost knowledge and. Um, what we might be missing um, within this. I don't know. It was just like an intriguing question for me about these ancient societies where I saw a lot of wisdom and inspiration, particularly in how they understood religion and science as really co-twined and informing one another.
1: Very cool. Well, okay, so sometime back, uh, an account on Twitter followed me And the account username was Rat Lab. (laughs) And I had no idea what this was, but all of a sudden, like my tweets were getting like mass liked by Rat Lab. And it took me quite a while to figure out that that is actually you. And I'm so delighted that we came together because of, uh, you know, sacred rights and everything that you have going on there. But um. I want to know about this project that you do because I know you're the co founder and curator of the Religion, Art, and Technology Lab, which is what RAT Lab stands for, and that you produce multi sensory exhibitions for the public on the relationship between faith, aesthetics, and innovation. But mm-hmm. I want to know more. Tell me all about this project and what it is that you're doing with RAT Lab.
0: Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, this is one of my, uh, this is like one of my, favorite projects. um, Absolutely. I (laughs) I know exactly how that feels. You know, um, so how I see the future and trajectory of religion developing uh, has a lot to do with Brat Lab. And really, it's my colleagues. So I started it in collaboration with Cher Afghan Tureen and Rebecca Kaufman, who are my colleagues who work in the study of religion um, and museum studies. So they have, a, so it really began from friendship. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we basically knew each other from either working together on religious projects or museum projects, because I also, in addition to working in academia, I also do a lot of work with museums and I have a certificate in museum studies. So I have a ton of work there. So cool. basically we all came together in this kind of like working together on other projects And when we came together, we were always talking about like religion, technology, art. And we were like, oh, you know, like we would wish that museums and academia would like study these interconnections more. Um, And so we were just like hanging out, you know, at bars and restaurants. (laughs) And then we were like, you know, like, let's start this. This sounds like a good idea. Like Mm -hmm. start our own kind of project that could maybe develop in just kind of interesting ways. Just an experiment. We saw it as an experiment. So really that's the the foundation of it. We is is our own shared interests and our friendship. And so religion, art and technology, yeah, explores this idea of aesthetics, faith, and innovation, which a lot of people might see as opposed or at odds with one another, or even in conflict with one another. And one of the things that we want to do with this what we call a laboratory of of experiments is to actually show that the three are entwined and are always informing each other.
1: Mm, Excellent. Is there like a physical space that people can can go to? Tell me about like what it is that you do whenever you all get together.
0: Yeah. So right now it's just virtual. So you can go to ratlabmuseum.org to see all of our virtual exhibits. We hope to have a physical space. In the future, we are working on grants as we speak. Excellent. Uh, to work on a physical space, you know, where to house it, should it be housed within a university, something like that. Um, we're all kind of exploring those questions as we speak. <laughs> so that's a great question. Wonderful. Um, they're all virtual right now. So that, so they try, they're multi-sensory exhibits within virtual spaces.
1: Okay. Your current exhibit, I was looking at the website earlier and it's called Tangible Intangible. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about this um, like, And also, I'm curious about how long the exhibits last and things like that and what people can expect if they visit. So tell me about the, the current exhibit and then kind of like your your process of exhibiting works through the museum.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the current exhibit, Tangible and Tangible, is really the genius and invention of Rebecca Kaufman, uh, who is my colleague, who is also co-founder and curator within Rat Lab. Uh, who has a background in religion and museum exhibition. And this exhibit really explores this idea about how those things that are intangible, right? So maybe they might be feelings, emotions, which are often dismissed as re- and relegated as kind of unimportant because we can't see or observe them. -hmm. Um, And so, oftentimes, that which we can't see or observe is often dismissed as somehow unimportant. When in reality, (laughs) it might, it it usually is a very formative force in society that is shaping tangible institutions, um, political movements, uh, those kind of things, uh, whether it be faith, emotion, that kind of idea is really at the heart of everything that happens within the world. And so, what Rebecca did is she asked some artists to really explore this tension with emotion and faith. You know these things that are intangible, and how we could maybe trace their influences within tangible products. Mm-hmm. Um, so she collaborated collaborated with this team of artists and actual and academics, um, also leaders of various political movements um, in America oh, to wonderful. create this exhibition. So it's it's really great, and you can. It's available on ratlermuseum.org. You can click on there and it's got the exhibition. And then what we also did is interviews with all the artists, leaders, academics to get the background on their process. So the exhibit could take all day (laughs) (laughs) if you want, Um, but, you know, you could go through it in about an hour.
1: So. Are the, the interviews like audio form that you publish in on the website as well? So if you click on a piece, you can also hear from the artists themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah. So if you go to the, you click on the through Rat Lab Museum, it will take you to the exhibit, and then when you go through the exhibit, you can click on various like art, the background, and you can hear the artist's voice.
1: Wonderful. Well. No, elaborating on that, I know that you've also dabbled in audio with the lab as well. And I'm glad that I know a little bit about your backstory as well within physics and astronomy, because I clicked on the Paranormativity podcast link from Rat Lab. And I noticed like Carl Sagan starts popping up and I'm like, oh, this is absolutely fantastic. So I can see your background and love of physics and astronomy coming through within the projects that you're doing. And so I want to know a little bit about the Paranormativity podcast as well that you all have dabbled in, um, especially like over the last year or so.
0: Yeah, um, great. Yeah. So that's a new experiment. We're experimenting with the audio there. Yeah. Uh, we love the idea of a podcast about orality uh, and orality in society. I think this idea of storytelling, mm-hmm. I really do think that podcasts are filling this hole within society for orality and storytelling. Yeah.
1: I totally agree.
0: Right. I mean, and, and, you know, the story shared around the fire, I mean, at the end of the day, right. I mean, Mm -hmm. that that's how I see civilization, like really functioning, (laughs) you know, we need that. And so that's kind of that experiment is kind of to tell these stories um, that might be little known about physics and astronomy. Um, As you can see my background in there and tied in with faith. And the idea there is to get young people and people who maybe um, don't see themselves as having the requisite knowledge or tools to study complex topics within these fields an opportunity to have like kind of an entry level into them.
1: Wonderful, so
0: Carl Sagan, like as you saw, uh, Cosmos. I just on an offshoot, I, like I watched Cosmos like growing up, like every yeah. day religiously. <laughs> yeah, and and that and Carl Sagan is like yeah, that, that is why I am the way I am today.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, and there's a lot of UFO stuff in there and there's been a yes. lot of news in the last year or so about UFO material. Have you been following all those stories yes. that are being like released by like the state department or the department of defense or whoever is doing all those reports?
0: Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a big unapologetic UFO <laughs> studier, I guess, sir. Um, I, I read Diana Wash American cosmic. Oh, such a great book. Um, that really explains UFO phenomenon from a religious and scientific perspective mm-hmm. um, that makes it seem like, cause oftentimes UFOs are seen as something like bizarre, kind of like an offshoot culture, but really uh, a lot of people within NASA and our mainstream scientific institutions are, are kind of believers or are, um, you know, um, at least it's within the purview of rational thought that there might be some things out there that we don't quite understand yet.
1: Mm, So fascinating. Well, I want to do a sort of awkward pivot away from the Rat Lab Museum and the work that you've been doing with your colleagues and then get into some of your own scholarship, because on top of the lab, you also do many other things as well. And um, I want to talk a little bit about your interest in public health, a little bit about your interest in Africana religions, as well as some of your interests within, you know, making higher ed a better place for people. And an article of yours that I recently read, is called An Afrocentric Approach to Public Health, Africana Religions and Public Health in Graduate Education. And I really enjoyed it. And it's a different kind of piece than I've ever featured on the podcast before, because it's like a call to action um, essay. It's like a piece of activism and a proposal to make a specific place a little bit better in very particular ways. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me to kind of set the stage here a little bit about your interests in public health and Africana religions to kind of bring some context to this paper before we dive in a little more deeply.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great. Um so yeah, I, this call to action, it's interesting you notice that, because that's what I think the purpose of scholarship should be, uh-huh. is, you know, I should seek to make the world a better place. Sure. Um, and scholars should be open and honest, you know, that's the, my kind of background about what's shaping you, and just be, like, honest about your intentions and your activism behind that. Yeah. So yeah, that piece uh, is definitely an example of how I write, because I always think writing too should, irregardless of, you know, this idea of public scholarship versus, non-public scholarship somehow like mm-hmm. all scholarship is public <laughs> like, yeah and we should recognize that and acknowledge that so that's a, that's a part of it and yeah um so africana religions and health so for me i think that the basis the way i look at health um is its connection and in, it's inextricably bound not just to the history of science but the history of religion mm-hmm. um you know we've known this for a long time that the two are co-twined that uh Religious missionaries really kind of create the basis for what we now consider Western modern medicine, which a lot of different scholars have traced those beginnings and those origins. And yeah, so the article itself is looking at, in the case of our understandings of health, are largely undergirded by this history of medical missionaries and colonists' encounter with African religions particularly African religions had this idea of plant-based medicines. Mm -hmm. They had this like unique understanding that plants could be used as medicines, which at the time going back, you got to remember, like, and this is happening 17th, 18th centuries, you know, Europeans are doing what's called purgative medicine, which is like leeches, uh, bloodletting <laughs> bloodletting yeah like you know yeah. they, they believe it's like bodily humors and you have to create this <laughs> balance you know so this this was our understanding of medicine before colonists and medical missionaries uh, encounter african communities and they look at their they are flabbergasted really like they are using the plants and the non-human environment as an effective mechanism to heal mm. and that really becomes the basis for much of modern medicine and pharmacology. So, seventy percent of U.S. pharmaceuticals uh, on the shelf today are derivatives from plant-based medicines, hmm. largely from Africa or from Asia. So, but many people don't know about this history. I, I mean, don't. Yeah, and yeah. It, no one would because you know you go to see your pharmaceutical, you, you get a pharmaceutical, and it just says you know the name of the product, um, but. The history is not there so like how we came to get this knowledge of the plant how the plant came came to become a modern pharmaceutical so th- that uh article kind of traces that encounter and that exchange and how we should within academia build programs that attempt to um you know teach students this important history and really foreground this history as formative to medicine So that we can build more pluralistic programs um, that allow students um, to get outside of kind of like a narrow Western centric focus and understand the global history of medicine, particularly as it evolves. So that medicine can become more inclusive um, in general and in terms of people, in terms of histories, in terms of cultures and and can be more dynamic. So that's basically the article. So in, in general, I think um, medicine and uh, public health more generally as its practiced, I, I'm just making the argument, we need to teach religion. <laughs> religion and religious history needs to become an important uh, component of the training programs that we have for healthcare professionals. It's gonna make them better healthcare professionals ultimately is basically my, my point. So rather than cut religion programs, we should be funding them. <laughs>
1: Oh, interesting. So you want to? So the pitch is sort of to make it so that people entering public health professions are more trained in religion in general. Does that make mm-hmm.
0: sense? Yes. Yes. Exactly. So, and I'm really building on the work of Ellen Eidler. So I have to call give her a shout out. Her work. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote um, has this idea of religion as a social social determinant of health. Um, and makes the argument that we need to understand religion as a social determinant of of health which we currently do not do. Technically, um, according to the standards out there, religion is not a social determinant. And it's often treated, you know, as something that's like, might be even oppositional to health at times, um, rather than to understand it as really formative. Because if you think about religion and its influence on communities, you know, it has a really powerful role in helping us form relationships, interconnections, and find meaning in our world, which Mm -hmm. is pretty important in terms of our health and well-being. Yeah. Uh, You know, those are important elements. So yeah, uh, that's uh, the, the basic idea here is to reframe religion as a social determinant of health.
1: Well, and religious illiteracy among, you know, teachers, bureaucrats, government leaders, healthcare providers, that can lead to a Breakdown of relationships between communities. It can lead to the lack of flourishing between those communities. And you kind of go into this a little bit in the article uh, where you talk about how governments, bureaucrats, and leaders can have conflict. And the, I'm just going to quote directly from you The mm-hmm. fundamental conflict between contemporary health systems, government bureaucracies, and local religious leaders and healers is a very common problem in contemporary public health, best exemplified by responses to the hiv aids and ebola pandemics end quote you then talk about how government leaders tend to blame health crises on religious communities which then get picked up to denigrate religions on global news and i'm wondering if you can just tell the listeners some examples of how this cycle of blame tends to work
0: yeah so that's a great question um A good example would be Ebola in 2014, which initially the outbreak is blamed on an indigenous religious healer
1: Mm
0: -hmm. who's working within Africa. Um, And they basically argue, initially the blame is that this indigenous religious healer was practicing irresponsibly and spreading Ebola among people. Well, it later turns out that, no, that wasn't true, and that he didn't have anything to do with the spread of Ebola. In fact, when scholars go back and are looking at the 2014 Ebola outbreak, they actually find that indigenous healers were doing playing an important role in helping people understand what the disease was um, mm. and trying to limit actually people's <laughs> you know um, interactions uh, with each other to limit the spread of Ebola, and we're trying to provide resources to people. Um, and so scholars looking back at the 2014 Ebola pandemic have actually found that indigenous healers were not only an important kind of way to mitigate the spread of Ebola, but moving forward um, could provide really important resources to underserved communities because many indigenous healers within Africa work within rural, you know, small villages where healthcare professionals can't get to, um, where there might not be hospitals. So one of the things that they found is, you know, it works really well to kind of design a pluralistic system that takes into account Indigenous healers as important resources. So you can provide training, information to them, and then they can go out and provide that to people who might not be reached by healthcare professionals.
1: Gotcha. Well, and I want to know about how the media plays into this as well, because what happens around the world gets filtered and reported to you know you me everybody who lives around us in really particular ways in ways that might uh, misinform us and might you know negatively paint a picture of certain groups of people which we then as a society may have you know negative connotations and judgments towards because of you know something that was reported in a very particular way to us and so i'm wondering how media outlets misplace their blame and what kind of effects that has on us in our society viewing these stories from elsewhere in the world
0: yeah that's a great question um to give you an example there's a recent because a lot of it's Western media. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's all, it's all media from like a European or American perspective. Yeah. Um, in the case of like the, uh, pandemics in Africa, like the Ebola pandemic, one of the headlines in a French popular newspaper, um, I'm forgetting the name of the newspaper now, but it was like African medicine on a collision course with Western medicine. Mm. You know, like inherently framed as if like conflict. yeah, conflict. like there there has to be a conflict. And so, like as if uh, African um medicine, which is largely informed by African indigenous religious practices, is somehow like oppositional in conflict with Western medicine, uh, archaic, you know, primitive, you know, all these negative associations in your right. head, which then frames Africa as somehow like the other of the yeah. West, you know, which then is then just perpetuated, you know, which is a very common colonial discursive force that has been informing America and Europe's engagement and encounters with Africa for nearly like 400 years, 500 years, you know. Um, so, yeah, it it really this idea, uh, the media plays a formative role, really, in shaping our, our perspective, because most people have it, will go to other countries, will, not um, you know, meet indigenous healers won't won't live in these villages don't know any other the the media provides their only access to it so they of course are going to shape it so yeah i think there is and i think this is where public scholarship could really make huge inroads into the media um, and academics could really go out there and because i don't think that it's like uh, the media it's like an intentional i think it's just like kind of a discursive force that's been out there and people just like innately think, oh, African, you know, indigenous medicine must be in conflict with Western medicine. <laughs> you know, like they're just like it's so it's so ingrained in our culture. We we take it for granted.
1: Yeah. So think, yeah, go ahead. And, and and you know, like for people in um like hundreds of millions of people like hearing stories like this think about all of the individual work that would have to take place among all the people that hear those stories for them to, you know, unravel and unpack the messages that they've received over the course of their lifetime and how widespread that um, that negative view would be because of sometimes a very few specific stories that could get out there. like the amount of personal reflection, that would have to take place for all the people who heard those stories uh, to unpack it for themselves and rethink how they were taught it in the first place. That's an unbelievable amount of widespread, like, damage to the way people see other places in the world.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it it's it it basically like ends your. <laughs> it would require an, an entirely new way to relate to your world. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that rethinking but I do think it's coming. I do. Think, <laughs> I think it is coming. I, I think, um, particularly in academia, um, you know, there's a recent push among healthcare professionals for allopathic, um, holistic models of medicine. Um, there's this, this huge effort to look at indigenous healing practices differently. I think it's possible.
1: Wonderful. Well, we, and we have to keep trying there's mm-hmm. we're here now and we're alive now. And there's really nothing else, there's really no other choice but to continue to try. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I'm wondering if we can connect this uh, blame cycle factor in with what we've all been living through for the past couple of years with the SARS COVID pandemic. Like, (laughs) have you, now that you have like a personal awareness of these cycles and how they tend to perpetuate, what are you noticing as somebody who was already paying attention to the way that medical emergencies are portrayed in the media?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> blame. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote a, a public, uh, an, an article about this um, for a, a religion blog recently about the start of the COVID pandemic, because that's where I, I started to see this blame discourse taking place. Um Framed around Jewish communities if you if you remember at the start um, it was New Rochelle New yep. York New Rochelle New, Ro- New York yep yeah, which is a predominantly Orthodox Jewish population yeah and yeah, and they had it, it was a voluntary quarantine uh, right but they they drew and I talk about this in this little short blog piece they drew the quarantine zone with the center being the synagogue mm. So they made the center of this quarantine, it happened to be the synagogue.
1: (laughs) And I'm sure that it was labeled on a map too, synagogue.
0: It was, it was, it was literally. Um, And it it was flabbergasted because Orthodox Jews were primarily told that they were the ones who needed to quarantine. Um, And then like other residents in New Rochelle were not targeted with voluntary quarantine orders, which left a lot of Orthodox Jewish communities confused like why are we being targeted meanwhile of course covid was spreading across (laughs) across the globe but you know that early coverage really centered around that orthodox jewish community in new rochelle is somehow like the blame for covid spread um and so i focused my blog piece on that and then you you saw that blame cycle actually take place a lot with kind of jewish communities there was this tension for a while in new york and brooklyn about orthodox jewish rituals um you know they, they continued to practice funerary practices um they continued to gather together so there's a lot of this like tension um and blame on on religious rituals for spreading covid <laughs> at the start really i i saw that kind of blame cycle rather than you know um work with religious leaders, work with religious communities um, as important resources and getting information out there, distributing things like mass information, you know, re- resource because for a lot of people, especially, um, you know, I'm, I'm like part Jewish. So <laughs> speaking about it, from my background, but uh, is like the rabbi and religious leaders in general are very, um, people have a lot of trust in them. They are trusted, respected leaders of the community. Um, So if they are brought in, and by public health and by profession, you know, healthcare professionals and government officials, it it would do a lot to build trust with communities, because if it was coming from a rabbi, a priest, a reverend, uh, you know, a religious leader, people would be more likely to, to trust, you know, obviously trust, because that is already a person who has trust within the community. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of what my blog was looking at. <laughs> exactly this discourse of blame on uh, religious rituals specifically.
1: Gotcha. Well, so much of what you do, first of all, with Rat Lab and you know your paranormativity interests and UFO interests, as well as your interests in public health and pandemics and collaborations between religious communities and governments and officials and things like that. So much of this is. So entirely relevant to a greater public, not just within higher education, but I see what you do as being extremely interwoven into what people just need to know, um, which is convenient because you're doing a public rights um, or uh, sacred rights, sorry, public scholarship, um, trainings over the last couple of years. And, you know, you've been involved in podcasting and you're like creating a museum. And I'm just wondering what your work with sacred rights has done to help you build your own skills to engage a greater public so that they do care about things like what you're working on.
0: Yeah. Sacred rights is phenomenal. That's like exactly where I think we need to go within academia and scholarship more generally because Sacred Rights has the position that I do as well is that what we do is inherently for the public. And I think one of the things that's happened, particularly within religion and the humanities, kind of more generally, um, is that we have th- that, you know, the thing is with sometimes with STEM, there is kind of this inherent, oh, well, it's, it's for the public already, and they, they're mm-hmm. out there. Speaking with the public because there's that relationship that they have, whether good or bad, with corporations (laughs) and um, developing profitable corporate products. Right. um, You know, for better or worse, but uh, they have that uh, awareness, understanding, and um, relationships with the public already kind of built into what they do within their scholarship. Where I think in the humanities, there's been kind of a breakdown in that. Um, The public is like, well, what? is the humanities good for? What is the study of religion good for? You know, they're asking these questions. Of course, good here means profitable, potentially, mm-hmm. but <laughs> right. how, how we're trained to think. But um, I think what sacred rights is doing that I hope academia and scholarship in general, in the study of religion and humanities more generally, is really makes an effort um, to really build relationships with the public and public institutions, whether it be uh, media outlets, whether it be nonprofits, whether it be corporations even what, whether it be you know we got to build the relationships there for it, you know uh, you know uh, public in, uh, public institutions, political institutions, go out there, build those collaborative partnerships because then people are not asking you know what it, what are you good for? What are you worthy for here? But intuitively they understand it because you are a part of all these public institutions helping them and in informing the way that they're approaching and thinking about important topics and issues.:
1: Wonderful. So,
0: yeah, that's what I got from Sacred Rights. How to build those collaborative partnerships?
1: Sure.. And, yeah. what, are you, uh, what are you working on right now? What are you paying attention to and where are you headed?
0: Yeah, great question. Uh, <laughs> largely as a result of all that great stuff I learned from Sacred Rights. I'm working on a grant project right now, which is I'm going to build a collaborative relationship between museums, nonprofits, cultural institutions, and academics through a public database Mm. on the religious histories of plant-based medicines. Cool. Yeah which I was talking about a little earlier in this podcast was kind of like how most people don't know, 70% of like our pharmaceuticals are plants. Um, And many of this knowledge was gained from studying the religious practices of African and Asian communities. So this basic database project would tell this history through a series of interactive stories. Um, So this is an example of uh, kind of a public scholarship project that I think in the future could really build these relationships and collaborative partnerships with the public.
1: Wonderful. Well, I have just learned so much from this conversation today. You are just all, you have so many neat little niches that you work within. And I think it's so cool. And your energy is super inspiring. I'm kind of like um, going a little slowly in my podcasting right now. And this conversation just kind of reminds me why I love doing this so much. So Dr. Right. Amanda Furiasse, can yeah. you tell people where they can find you if they would like to follow your work in the future?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you can follow Rat Lab on Twitter. <laughs> that's that's the best way as I'm working. It's not just me on Rat Lab on the Twitter. It's also my colleague, Sharaf Cantarina, Rebecca Kaufman, a little bit. We also have our social media accounts. We have Instagram. We have a Facebook account for Rat Lab um, that is also active ratlabmuseum.org is always good because there you can stay stay kind of up to date about what new exhibitions. You know, we're working on some of this this public database on plant-based medicine, but we also have another exhibit on reprogramming reality, which is going to explore kind of consciousness and uh, how we think about reality and how it might be flawed and new ways to approach reality. So we got some cool stuff coming out in the future.
1: Awesome. And Paranormativity podcast i was listening to it on spotify and apple Podcasts, so i mean it's out there for anybody who wants to find that i think there's like there are about 10 episodes i think that you all have made yeah. wonderful um so i'm obviously a huge fan of promoting podcasts so everybody check that out as well well thank you so much for being here this has been an absolutely delightful conversation um so just i look forward to learning more from you in the future
0: Thanks. Thanks so much. This is great. I love always an opportunity to share my passion, you know, got to do that. (laughs) Thank you for this opportunity.